In episode 61 of MobyCast, we recap another DockerCon 2019 session titled, Just What is a Server Mesh? And if I get one, we'll make everything okay. By Elton Stoneman. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about cloud-native development, AWS, and building distributed systems. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. Good to be back. All right. Two in a row where we're missing Rich. It's a little tough, but uh, I'll ask you what you've been up to lately, Chris. I have been enjoying the weather here in Seattle. So it's sunny. I think it's going to hit almost 80 degrees today. And so I've been getting a lot of outside outside time, making up for our incredibly long winter. So this is just so joyful. (laughs) Seeing the sun, feeling the heat, wearing shorts, getting some miles in on my bike and trying not to look at the forecast that's coming for next week where like this is getting taken away. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's so, what and, happened to us this week. So, oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awful here. And it's supposed to be the start of river surfing season. And if you don't know what that is, Google will help you just Google river surfing. And I was excited for it. And and now the flows are all down because flows of, of river water on melt season go down when it gets cold. And so they don't create a nice big wave to surf on. No, you need like a flamethrower or something like that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> get, get a few of those. Melt all the mountains. Like, <laughs> yes, stations and people above, above right. and just, yeah, get to work. So we're going to do another episode talking about one of the other really good talks that you saw at DockerCon. And this will probably be a two-parter as well. And as we said, that DockerCon this year was really more focused on the enterprise and also likely on people that are kind of new to Docker. So a lot of the talks that were available were you know, not for people that have been using Docker since its inception. But this one, this one, I think for me, I'm really excited about it. We're going to talk about service meshes, which I've known only just enough about until today, until an hour, you know, half an hour from now. I've only known just enough about to figure that we're probably fine without them for our clients and, and, and within our company at Kelsus. But I hope to be proven wrong. Maybe it's time. Maybe they maybe they've kind of become something that even users of, of like four and five and a dozen microservices could benefit from a service mesh. So let's get into it, Chris. Let's talk about service meshes. Yeah. So I mean this was I think, you know, it's a good time to talk about it just because the the, the term service mesh has been has been out there now for a while. It's pretty it's pretty hot, you know, buzzword, if you will. Um, you hear a lot of talk about it and definitely with in relation to like the most popular service mesh right now, which is Istio. And so when I saw this this talk there at DockerCon, it's like, yeah, this, this this makes sense to go sit through it and see what they have to say. And so this is the title of the session was just what is a service mesh? And if I get one, will it make everything okay? And this was given by Elton Stoneman, who's a developer advocate at Docker. And what's really good about what was really good about this session is that it just really just talk about kind of like in the general high level like service mesh. And so things we'll kind of cover is you know what is a service mesh and why do we need them and how do they work? Like what's the basic architecture and what functionality do you get with them and should you use one and you know what's the cost of doing this? So that's what we'll talk about today. So some just really, you know, give a good treatment to service mesh. And by the end of this, definitely should have a good idea of that question you had at the top of, hey, should we be using this for our clients? Yep. I think the, the answer will be very evident after, okay. we, after okay. we go through this. 
So with that, so service mesh defined, like, so what is this? And so Elton kind of had his own version, simplified definition of it. And he, he likes to refer to it as it's the communication between software components made into its own thing. Okay. Right? So note, it's not container specific. It's not microservice specific, really. It's just kind of referring to this, this communication backbone, you know, if you will, for, for these components to just to be able to talk to each other. I mean, the, the old curmudgeon in me says that we used to call that middleware but okay, okay. sure i mean I, you know over i mean over i mean there's been just anything and everything under the sun and, and various different technologies and thing. i mean we used to have i don't know if you do you remember like uh corba yeah exactly um, that's exactly what i'm getting right? at yeah you, you've got um, your forms you your you object your system yeah. and ordering system and they all need to talk to each other and you put some mm-hmm. middleware into the enterprise and that handles all that communication yeah, yeah. i think m- the difference here is that most of those things weren't necessarily doing network traffic and trying to like basically you c- i think you can kind of think of a service mesh as the switchboard okay right so like the the telephone operator that's connecting calls right so mm-hmm. someone tries to make a call and says i want to go talk to this person so the operator is like making that connection, right? They the, the person calling doesn't know how that connection needs to be made. They're just asked, requesting that it be made, and then it's up to the operator to. They know they have the map, right? If you will, mm-hmm. of how to talk to them, and so that's kind of what a service mesh is doing versus the things like the object request brokers and um, that middleware. I think that was more about just interoperability and marshaling, unmarshaling, mm-hmm. um, you know, type thing. So it was more at the application level layer than it was at the the networking layer. And that's really where the where the service mesh lies. Okay, so that description, I want to poke it, poke on this a little bit more. And I know we're going to get deeper into what it actually is and what it does, but it's making me feel like service meshes are kind of like DNS, but up a level, like DNS for your services. It's a it's a big part of it, right? So like you can't really talk about service mesh without talking about service discovery. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, that's a whole big topic. And that's definitely part of, you know, one of the things that a service mesh will give you. So service discovery is basically DNS at the mic for microservices, mm-hmm. right? Where you have, you know, many, many microservices and kind of keeping track of just what the names are and where they live, it becomes a, a difficult problem. So mm-hmm. um, service discovery is kind of like pushing more to the making that much more dynamic. And that's definitely something that service mesh will will help facilitate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That helps. Yeah. So, you know, so given that, okay, so now we have kind of like this, this kind of broad general definition of, of service mesh. It's like, well, why do we need a service mesh? Right. And so during this talk, kind of like walk through the examples, like, okay, let's start with just a simple application. We have a web server and it needs to talk to a database. Right. And so in order to do that, you need to either know or you need to implement functionality for like things like, well, what's the address of the database server? How do I connect to it? What are timeouts and how does that work? What about retry logic? What about encryption? Right. So all that needs to be thought of and needs to be implemented and, and dealt with. And so, and that's, if you just have two components, then okay, you just do it once and you're done. But now what happens when you add an API server into the mix? So you have the web server, an API server, and a database server. And so now you, you have to start doing the same things again, right? So those connections between, say, the web server and the API server, same kind of same kind of issue. 
issues like what's the address? How do I connect to it? I have to do retry logic. What about encryption timeouts and whatnot? So, you know, with a microservices architecture like this, this starts, this could definitely very quickly become an unmanageable task where you have so many point to point connections, right? Because there's so many different software components in there and services and you have all these different point to point connections that can be made and you have to deal with all these, these kind of communication things, right? And so I'm, that, I'm sort of with you, but I've got to interrupt again and I, I apologize, but you know, where, so this is where my mind is going. It's like, okay, you just put an apple and an orange and a banana out and you said, they all talk to each other the same way. So let's abstract that out. But I'm kind of like, no, they don't. They're apple and orange and banana. And I, I will have very different rules on retrying to a database than I will, you know, maybe a web server asking my API server. That's maybe fine if it retries in a certain way. But I'm certainly not going to, you know, retry in certain ways, you know, the same way against my database. I don't know. It just feels very, and, and then like the communication between them is different too. Like the database, I guess at, under under it all, it's TCPIP. But but like there's a reason that it's that we're not just writing socket code between our API server and our database, and that all you know it's all been raised up a level. So so I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous because it feels like we're going to have a bag full of really disparate stuff, and we're going to try to make it interactive operable or try to find the lowest common denominator between all of it. And it's not going to be that useful. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, a few things to keep in mind. So I guess same, same with the fruit analogy, you know, in, in this particular case, you know, I, I did mention three three components that are quite different in functionality, right? So front end web server, microservice API in the middle and a database server. Um, mm-hmm. so call it, you know, apple, banana, pear or whatever it sure, is, right? right? However, you know, in a microservices architecture, you're going to have lots and lots of API servers, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're all bananas, right? They might mm-hmm. be slightly different ones, like different varieties or whatnot. And the same thing with the apples, right? You're going to have a lot of different apples, um, mm-hmm. some cameos, some some gala apples and, and whatnot, right? So, so you have that. So think of it from that respect is that you okay. definitely have categories of things. And so you can think about like just... At a high level, like you could probably like, okay, yeah, retry logic might be different when I'm talking to a database, but maybe not so much different when it's talking to a RESTful API, you know, type thing, right? So I can have like service policies that apply to each each type of fruit, if you will. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Okay. And then, you know, further extending that, like I think they, all these things need things like water, fertilizer, mm-hmm. sunlight, right? And that's regardless of what kind of fruit it is, right? Okay. So, so there's there's a there's a lot again there's there's a lot of commonality there there's a lot of duplication there's a lot there's things that you can kind of like categorize um, and group together as well so lots of lots of overlap and that's okay. what, that's what a service mesh is addressing right is so that you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel and keep your your architecture dry okay cool right. so that's that was that's basically the genesis for why service meshes were created right is really kind of it does boil down to like microservices architecture and the proliferation of many individual components instead of big monoliths and so the point-to-point communications goes up and so this this becomes much more of an issue so this is a, a good time maybe to talk about like just how in general like what how how a service mesh works the basic architecture mm-hmm. and really i mean the the key point here is that it's all about it's a proxy to your to soft to the software component so like just about every service mesh works this way where they're gonna for each component that you have that you want to be part of the mesh there's 
there's going to be a sidecar deployment of a proxy. And that proxy is what basically gives access to the mesh. And now, instead of your software component talking to directly to um, other software components, the only thing it talks to is its proxy. And it's really, it's the proxies that are that are now implementing this whole communication backbone type thing. Okay, yeah. Right? So... So, so you register- yeah, you're not doing your some of this stuff like encryption and maybe even authentication too, like stuff like that. Is that going to all reside now in the in these sidecars that you put everywhere? It depends on you know how you know what mesh you're using and how much of those features that you are doing mm-hmm. it depends on your application. It depends on what what we mean by by that. Like if it's mutual TLS encryption, right? Like the certificates and identities that can definitely be managed by your by your mesh uh-huh. and it will okay so so i think you know so so that's definitely something key you know going forward yeah, that helps it become clear now that now that i have like a single you know one understandable thing that gets attached to every single container in my system that i can go talk to and that container is responsible for getting information in and out of the actual running container that i get it i, I yes. can see how that could be useful yes so your software components they talk to the proxy and then the proxy talks to the other proxies mm-hmm. right that's the that's the community so so now so things like address you know addressing like what's the address of this thing i need to talk to things like timeouts retries encryption that all now lies in the service mesh and is implemented by that by the proxy okay right and not only that but you know now because of that architecture and now you have that that proxy that's separate from your application it gives you right like you can continue to add features to it right so things like rate limiting mm-hmm. becomes very easy to do and add into this you, you don't have to have any changes to your application whatsoever right you can just have a policy that just says hey when making when this when this component makes a request to this other component like i'm not going to let it do it more frequently than every you know 60 a second or something like that mm-hmm. cool so what general features does a service mesh give us and they, they really kind of boil down into to three broad categories. So we have traffic management. And so traffic management, this is a lot of what we've what we've kind of already talked about. So this is like service discovery. It's things like load balancing, failure handling, health checks, retry logic. It's also customized routing, things like fault injection. You can do things like A-B testing and, and uh, stage rollouts. Yep, so yep. all that all that falls under traffic management. And that's a, one of the big things that a service mesh will, will give you. A second large component of a service mesh is the security. So things like encryption, authentication, authorization, all that is can be covered with by with your service mesh, which things like having mutual TLS encryption and certificate management that which is completely automated, right? So your mesh can issue, can keep track and also rotate the certificates that are being used to to do that mutual TLS. So now it's like it's becoming just so obvious to me, and I think that I think that for a lot of people that that are new to this, like but that have been around monoliths, it's like the stuff that monoliths provide for free, like your your Rails framework or your Django framework is going to give you all this stuff, and then you just have to implement features on top of it. Now that everything is distributed and, and very small, like you need you still need all those features, like you still need all of the stuff that your big monolithic framework got you, and now but now you need it in a really distributed way. 
that it feels like that's that's a big part of what service meshes give you back in a, in this you know hugely distributed world. Yeah, maybe. I, mean, I think you know part of that too is just the fact that like things like microservices architecture have now created these problems. Mm-hmm, that's right? it. For sure. So like if it's a monolith and it's just talking to a database, then like a lot of these issues go away. Like the idea of like creating X509 certs to do encrypted into encrypted mutual TLS encryption over the wire and to do auto rotation of those credentials. You know, that's not so much of a, so much of a deal load balancing and customized routing. Like it just, these are just, these become new issues that we have to deal with because we have a microservices architecture. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, in, in that sense, let's like, Communication is much more complicated with the microservices architecture than it is with the monolith, mm-hmm. right? So service messages are trying to help help alleviate some of that pain. Okay. Hey there, this is Rich. Please pardon this quick interruption. We recently passed an internal milestone of 30,000 listens, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the support. I was also hoping to encourage you to head on over to iTunes to leave us a review. Positive feedback and constructive criticism are both incredibly important to us. So give us an idea of how we're doing, and we'll promise to keep publishing new episodes every week. Okay, let's dive back in. And then the third major category of, of service mesh features that you can expect is observability, right? So this is things like monitoring, logging, distributed tracing, and then visualization of all this, right? Your mesh can give you that. Okay. So you, can, you can see all the communication that's happening inside your inside your system and you know where things might be slow or having problems troubleshooting and debugging if you want to you know distributed tracing becomes a really (laughs) a key problem to solve right in a microservices architecture right so it's like because it's no longer just like oh i i went i came into the service and like what happened and said no you got to kind of like follow the thread the path right because it actually went from service a to b to c to d Mm -hmm. Um, and you need to kind of like take all of that into account and so that's distributed tracing and so that's something your service mesh will will give you as well okay cool i feel like i get that and i i also feel like i already have an inkling of where where this is going and whether whether we need this or not and it feels like the where, my preview of where it's going it's like what is a harder problem for you right now dealing with all of your services and and you know all of the things that they need in terms of care and feeding to operate them like and for them to communicate with it with one another is that harder for you yeah i think at the end of the day it just boils down to like how much pain do you have with this this communication between your your microservices right, right? and right. If, if you have enough microservices where it's painful then you need a mesh but if you really aren't feeling the pain and like these features that we're calling out are not really speaking to you then you probably don't need it like there's, there's right no i guess that's that's what i was getting at is like you don't need it if 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 you're just deploying a few services and you don't deploy you know maybe maybe you're not deploying them more than a couple times a week at, at most and you and you have good cicd that deploys them automatically and then you know they can it's not hard for them to find each other because there's only a few of them and it's not difficult you don't have you know they all have their own rules for retry and failure and like monitoring them is not that hard because you can just hook them each up to a monitoring system some sort of application monitoring system and see them all in one dashboard at one time uh, then it feels like a service mesh is like just adding another thing that you have to do care and feeding of it's like another component that you have to watch out for and make sure it's running and et cetera, et cetera. yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it's it's you know because it is an application right you have to deploy it into your cluster make sure that it is got enough band you know enough bandwidth to take requests 
like that initial proxy, it has to be it has to be up and running. Otherwise, every one of your services is all are all down, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, service mesh is not free. It's it adds it definitely it's a, its own layer of complication. You know, for an example, Istio, which we talked we referred to a little bit earlier, it's probably the most popular and most uh, robust or most mature service mesh out there. Just doing like a standard installation of Instio on a Kubernetes cluster ends up, so the, during this talk, kind of pointed this out during the demo, it spins up 59 containers for just Istio, right? For just the service mesh. That's before you start even deploying any of your apps. So that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I mean, there's, it's, it's, there's a lot of, and no, I mean, the other thing pointed out too is that Istio actually is, is right around 2 million lines of code, right? Oh. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot of functions functionality that you're getting and there's but it's not it's not free right i mean there is and not just that but there's also you have to think about like well how do i how do i use this how do i maintain it how do i configure it how do i run it like all that stuff there's a learning curve sure. to that right and so we're kind of kind of getting into a little bit about okay like when should you use a service mesh and then also like definitely consider the cost of the mesh and so Kind of touched a little bit about like when you should use it. So if you've got a lot of services where again, like this is starting, this is causing pain, things like service discovery is a problem. Things like you do want to do things like rate limiting, or you want to do more detailed fine grain routing and, or you want to have, make it easier to set policies for like just security reasons, like only like these services going to talk to these other services type thing. Mm -hmm. um, then that's when you want to start thinking about a service mesh. Or if you have Snowflake implementations where you're finding that you're doing kind of doing lather, rinse, repeat on building some of this functionality for each one of your apps or microservices, then, you know, that's another another one of those things that should spur you to look at a service mesh as a way of, of getting out of that, that reinventing, reinventing of the wheel. And then you also might consider a service mesh if you have you're you're doing an application pilot from scratch so greenfield building like a cloud native application you might consider just as a way of a piloting it right and kind of getting some familiarity with it with the service mesh but if you have a handful of microservices probably don't probably don't need a service mesh yeah i don't know if I, I may just have to do a hard disagree there like unless you're sure that you're gonna you know go from zero to 60 very very quickly it's it sure feels like i i don't know spending a limited development budget playing with a service mesh as you're also mm -hmm. trying to invent something brand new uh, it feels a little wrong-headed to me don't use that as the time to you know go do something else that's also super hard in addition to developing a brand new app that's never mm -hmm. application that's never existed before mm -hmm. yeah i think i think the point that elton was making here was just like if you're going to use it like don't do it on an existing application that's, that's where you have to go and change change code and whatnot right like do it with something that starts from scratch and <sighs> so if you want to i mean that's it's really good. hard. It's, it's, it's really like a very tricky problem then because it's like when you start from scratch, unless you know right out of the gate that like, okay, we're going to start from scratch and this thing is going to have 25 microservices that all need to talk to each other and it's going to have millions of users and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know that from day one and 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 like, you know that you're going to be, you're going to need that kind of load balancing capability and that kind of like super, super flexible you know, route management and all the things that you get from a service mesh. If you know that, you know, maybe you're a telco and you're, you're 
building a new thing. So you're already, you know, that's what, what's going to happen as soon as you open the door, people are going to flood in and you, and it's like, you need that. Okay, sure. That's, that's probably when to do it. But otherwise, if you're going to, if you're like, well, we don't know if people are going to use this or not, and we're not sure if this is going to be a big thing, maybe you're a startup or you're, or you're building a new thing within it, within an enterprise and you don't know how people are going to react to it and you know, it'll start small. That, then it, then it feels like you shouldn't start with it, right? You should leave it out in order to maximize the amount of features you can get per developer hour. But then you end up in a situation later where you need it. And it seems like the, the most important feature that Istio developers out there could think about as they're developing and adding features to this is like, people need to be able to add this to existing architectures. People like, let's think really hard about that because it's architectures that grow that are the ones that suffer from, you know, service tanglement that re- that makes you want to have a service mesh. Like, doesn't it seem like that would be the case? Like, ah, oh, crap, we're, everything's falling over. We have service tanglement. We don't know what to do. Let's, I've heard Istio solves this problem. Let's go at it. Like, wouldn't that be the, the most normal way into it? Yeah, but it, it's kind of like just with everything else, it's like the architecture is baked in. So make, this is architecture change. So there's no, there's no silver bullet, right? It's the same kind of issue we've been dealing with over the last, five, six, seven years of big balls of mud, monolith, decomposing them into microservices. Like, how do you do that while just not grinding everything to a halt? And so it's the same thing here. I guess, I mean, I just want to push on this some more because it doesn't feel like it should be the same thing because like you've already got microservices. You decided at the beginning you're going to do microservices. And the nice thing about microservices is that they are all, you know, independently deployable and kind of have the same service area from the outside, at least. They all look like little black boxes that are running you know in containers and in each have their own little cluster maybe but like but for, for the most part they they're not like proteins you know they don't they don't have like they're pretty they're pretty similar looking so it seems like it should like the whole point is that it should be possible to take take those things and then put them into a management system that just is just proxies them and then they're like hey i'm still cool you're, you're proxying to me like no problem cool i was fine without being proxied to and i'm still fine now that you're proxying to me like doesn't it i don't know i don't know i've never the, the, yeah the, the level of effort that that's going to take is going to be directly commensurate with like how you like what you've put into your application to begin with right so like things like I mean, all these 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 things that the service mesh gives you, like service discovery and mutual TLS, retry logic, routing. So it just really depends on your existing architecture, how you're dealing with that if you are, you know, and you now have code changes to change. I mean, even something just as simple as just service discovery, like maybe now you're using DNS and now you need to change. So, I mean, that that's code change right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you're doing, you've implemented TLS encryption between you and other microservices and but now you want to take care you want you want to take advantage of mutual tls and have your service mesh to your certificates. Well, that's another, that's code change. Same thing goes with maybe you've done quotas or rate limiting retry logic. I mean, all that. So it just, it just really depends on. It's a really disheartening problem though, because now every single time we start a new project, we're going to play a game of Russian roulette. Is Are we going to kill the project because we lost all of our velocity from having to implement a service mesh from day one? Or are we going to get a bunch of velocity, get a bunch of users and then fall over when we can't apply a service mesh, mesh when we desperately need it? It's like you get, choose which death you would rather have <laughs> I, I think the good the, so i mean at the end of the, the good news here is that like you know people that need service mesh are netflix uh-huh. right it's it's kind of like at that scale for most people most organizations
applications. I just just don't see them getting complicated enough where it's like, oh, if we don't have a service mesh, we're going to fail. You can do there's you can implement bits and pieces of this without a mesh, right? There are service mesh alternatives. So you know, we again we talked about the three main things: it's giving you traffic management, security, observability. There are mediations for all that stuff outside of a service mesh, and you can take off as little or as much of that as you want. So you can do things like feature toggles, or you can have you know dynamic DNS for traffic management. We like we heavily use load balance load balancers with you know path-based routing in application load balancers with AWS. Mm-hmm. So we can easily do things like A B testing if we want or blue green deployments. Same thing goes, you know, same kind of things go with like observability, right? You can go implement tool, you can go do things like use hosted services like Datadog or Signal FX, or I mean, there's just millions of those kinds of those, those services out there. There's open so good, good open source tools in this area like Prometheus and Grafana and Jaeger. So there are answers to, to these problems, and you don't have to, you know, it's not all or nothing, right? So I mean, I, I think again, unless you really are going to have like a, a very big engineering team where they're you're creating many microservices, like it's probably not going to be you're just not going to go to that scale where it's like oh i need istio mm-hmm. and without istio we fail right right really interesting and it's especially interesting because as you were saying that you know part of me was like well if you're if you're spending the time mucking around with logic you know for routing on your load balancers and you're and you've got specialty dns you know specialized lines of code that deal with dns lookups and you've got feature toggles that you're hand coding and you've got you know all the all the other things like you're you're also configuring Configuring your application monitoring. That feels like a lot of individual pieces of work. And it, it would be interesting to me to think think about it from that perspective a little bit. Like, yeah, the, the Istio is this big beast, but it is a centralized beast that kind of ha- probably has a fairly consistent, you know, look and feel when you're playing with it. And if it's replacing a bunch of features that you have to go to umpteen different places to go do on your own, maybe once, you know, it could be sort of like super huge learning curve, but once you've done it's like whoa now all of this is so much easier and i would use it on every project no matter how small could that yeah i mean i'm I'm sure you 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 definitely have people that that feel that way and and do it it's just I mean, you can totally decide to go do that investment, right? To go through that learning curve, re- get really, really good at it. It's it's a very solid piece of infrastructure that's very, very powerful, right? It's kind of like Kubernetes. I mean, Kubernetes is 3.1 million lines of code. Um, <laughs> Kubernetes is very, very big, right? It's like it takes a long time to become an expert in Kubernetes, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so it, it kind of an interesting point that, Elton pointed out during this session is that just these kind of things are kind of like anti-DevOps. So things like Istio and Kubernetes are becoming so complicated that the the developers just don't, they're not going to touch it. They don't use it. They don't understand it, right? That's purely for the ops team, Yeah. right? So it's kind of creating that wall again because these tools are becoming so sophisticated and so complicated. I would fully agree. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. And so that's, again, probably another good rule of thumb on whether or not you should be doubling down on these things. Right? Can you really? Do you have an ops team? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want? Do you want to have an ops team? Right. Right. Because that's probably the route you're going down. Uh huh. Very cool. I think we're gonna do the second. The second episode is gonna be a bit deeper dive on some how some of this works. So yeah, I think I think that's probably good enough where we've talked about sort of all of of what it is from a high level architecture point of view and and whether we should use it or not. And then we'll be back next week and talk about talk about this a little more deeply. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks, John. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. 
We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash six one. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.